Hello and welcome to the podcast for Patriots. I'm your host, Jim Fralick. I ain't rich, but I damn sure wanna be. Working like a dog all day ain't working for me. I wish I had a rich uncle that'd kick the bucket and I was sitting on a pile like Warren Buffett. I know everybody says money can't buy happiness, but it can buy me a boat. Our goal here with Podcast for Patriots is to educate, inspire, and assist military members and veterans in achieving financial wealth through real estate investing. Today, I'm privileged to be interviewing Lieutenant Colonel Steve McGinnis. Steve is a member of the FIRE Club, which is the Financial Independence Retire Early movement that many, many of you have heard about, a member of the infantry stationed at Fort Benning. And he has a master's degree in personal financial planning and is an investor in single family homes in Georgia and Tennessee. Steve, can you hear me? Yes, Jim. How are you doing today? Good, good. Thank you for taking the time today to sit down for an interview. So, Steve, I gave a thumbnail sketch on you, uh, but I would like you, if you could, to give the listeners a minute or two about your military background and how you got involved in real estate and your overall current focus for investing. Okay, Jim. Hey, uh, first, I, I want to thank you for uh, inviting me to contribute to this podcast and to add to the discussion. I've listened to your first few episodes, and it's it's great to hear all these different perspectives and approaches to real estate investing. It's definitely expanding my horizons and making me think about some new avenues to possibly pursue in the future. Uh, so, yeah, real quick about me. Um, as you mentioned, I'm an active duty infantry officer, uh, United States Army. Lieutenant Colonel uh, with just over 16 years of service. I'll uh, hit 17 years uh, later this summer. Uh, my uh, thank you. Yeah, my uh, my career has kind of been a lot of zigzagging back and forth between uh, Georgia and Alaska. So started my career as almost all infantry officers do here at Fort Benning. Uh, then moved up to Fort Richardson, Alaska for my first assignment, and then back to Fort Benning for another couple of assignments and some schooling. Back to Fort Richardson, uh, Alaska, for another uh, command tour up there. And then from there, went to the National Capital Region, uh, where I did a broadening assignment and some more schooling. Then on to the mighty 101st Airborne Air Assault Division at Fort Campbell, in uh, kind of right on the border of Kentucky, Tennessee, where we purchased a home in Clarksville, Tennessee. And from there, went back to Alaska, uh, again to the uh, Fort Richardson, which combined with an Air Force base and became... Joint Base Elmendorf Richardson. And now we are back at Fort Benning, Georgia again, where we are currently living on post. So uh, it's been it's been great. Uh, two dynamic climates primarily, you know, very hot and humid down here in Georgia and uh, just amazingly beautiful and mostly cold up in Alaska. So uh, <laughs> that's, that's, awesome. that, that's been my, uh, yeah, and we love it. So, and that's been my, uh, my military career. And then, uh, and on top of that, uh, four deployments, uh, one to Iraq and three to Afghanistan. So, um, as for my real estate background, as, as mentioned, uh, purchased two homes. Uh, first was back in 2006, which was at the tippy tippy top height of the housing bu- bubble here in Columbus. Uh, so we definitely overpaid for a home. Uh, the second home we purchased in Clarksville, Tennessee in 2012, 
currently rent both of them out. Uh, the one in Clarksville, we actually self-manage, while the one that is uh, just six miles up the road here from the base, uh, we use a property manager for, which probably sounds a little backwards, but uh, I can go into that a little bit more later. Hmm. Um, so we've we've kind of done it all. We've we've self-managed. We've had property managers. I've done conventional loan, VA loan. I refinanced a loan, our first home back that we purchased in 2006. We refinanced in 2011, I think it was, to drop the interest rate and also drop it from a 30-year down to a 10-year mortgage. So a lot of different experience with, with single-family homes, and it's been so far for us a, a very positive, uh, mostly positive experience. That's awesome. Hey, thanks, Steve, for taking the time to give us that very interesting background. I don't know a ton of infantry officers. But I definitely don't know a lot of people that bounce back and forth between Georgia and Alaska. So that sounds interesting. I'm definitely going to uh, take you up on some conversations sometimes. Alaska is the one state I've never been to in this country. And uh, so I'm hoping to spend time there uh, sometime over the next uh, year or two. Finally hit Hawaii on a uh, TDY uh, last month. Nice. So I know based on what you're saying that you have an early warning. I hope you're willing to share with us. I want to give these listeners an early warning signal, something that you've learned a hard lesson on and you want to share with the listeners. Over. All right. So yeah, I have time to man the battle station. So early warning systems online. General quarters, general quarters, man your battle stations. This is not a drill. Repeat, this is not a drill. Two examples we kind of talked before kind of came to my mind right off the bat. And before I jump into it real quick, I just want to kind of share with your listeners, you know, uh, when you're when you are in the military and you're moving every couple of years and you you buy a home that you either intend to rent out or you know you want to sell but maybe the conditions don't favor that when you're time to move there's definitely an emotional aspect to being a landlord of single family homes that's kind of easy to describe but hard to live through you know as you're trying to do a house turnover whether it's when you're moving out of the house and you're trying to get someone to come in as a tenant or you're just trying to transition from one tenant to another, every day that that house sits empty or that you don't have somebody lined up and you've got a mortgage due on the first of the next month will ratchet up your stress and your anxiety. And if you're self-managing and you're self-advertising and you're going days without even a phishing email from uh, you know, somebody who found your stuff on Zillow or something else, and you'll get plenty of those, you know, you can start to worry, and this can lead you to make some bad decisions. Uh, you may prematurely drop your rental rate, you know, in hopes to garner more interest. And while this may satisfy that short-term emotional gain, you know, it could potentially have longer-term negative financial impacts for you. And the second type of bad decision you may make is taking the next applicant who walks in the door, even though the numbers and the situation doesn't add up. So the first bumper sticker statement I'd say is screen your applicants and trust the numbers. And I'll share with your listeners, you know, probably about a three to $4,000 mistake that I made several years ago, uh, which led me to change the way I screen my applicants. Okay. We were turning over our Georgia house from one renter to another. At the time, we were living in Tennessee, so we we're about six and a half hours away. And we were doing the usual advertising on the military-focused websites because that, that was my niche. That's what I wanted to focus on was, was military folks because we spoke the same language. You know, I knew what I was getting into, uh, that kind of stuff, right? So militarybyowner.com, AHRN, put our stuff out there, had some nibbles, came time to do the, the house turnover. Uh, my wife and I wanted to do most of it ourselves. We did everything except for uh, installing new carpet, but new paint, all that good stuff. We met a couple of couples 
who had contacted us during the uh, few weeks prior. You know, they met us at the house. We talked. We gave them our very generic, bland application, and uh, none of them actually followed through and submitted it. So probably on, I think we were there for four days total, and I want to say on day really two towards the end of the day, that that desperation starts to creep in where we realized that we were going to be leaving in two days, and we didn't have another renter lined up. And so once you're trying to show a house from six hours away and make those arrangements, uh, it gets very challenging. So on one of our half dozen trips to Lowe's, uh, we bought a few yard signs. We put them out on one of the busier roads that led down to another road, which led to our cul-de-sac. And then uh, later, I think it was on the third day, uh, this, this woman stops by. So she had seen our sign driving by. So a middle-aged woman. Uh, we start to chatting, and she's recently divorced. Uh, she's got two young girls. They were already in the school that was within walking distance of the home, you know, just about a half mile away. Uh, she made a decent salary as a customer service manager at a well-established, well-known national company who has a headquarters here that's also not very far from that house. At the time, we had, a, like I said, a basic application. Most of my stuff had been focused on military folks, so as long as they provided me an LES or, or a leave and earning statement, that told me just about everything that I thought I needed to know at that time. And also, the only kind of real common financial ratio I was using at the time was rent-to-income which generally is, you know, you want to have someone who the rent does not exceed 25 to 30% of their gross income. So, you know, as we're talking, she's kind of telling me a little bit about her story, you know, divorced. She was open and honest up front, said, hey, you know, my, my credit's terrible right now. Um, she's living in a small two-bedroom apartment, yada, yada, yada. Again, with that desperation, the numbers weren't necessarily adding up. But I, what I thought I saw was a good mom in a bad situation who had a stable job. And I started to look for ways to rationalize why this was a good choice. In retrospect, when I look back, I realized that I think it was more desperation that was trying to rationalize why this was a good choice. So for me, the biggest selling point, I had been renting to military exclusively before that. And I found myself every year and a half to two years turning that house over. So with her, I thought, well, potentially here's a person who may stay in this house for many, many years. And if the biggest pain in the butt for self-managing is the turnover process. Well, take a take a possible tenant that you won't have to turn over in a year and a half or two years. So I thought all that was gonna was gonna work out. So to kind of bluff it up front here, she uh, you know she after about a year and a half, uh, all of a sudden the rent check uh, stopped getting directly deposited because it was an electronic transfer and it was coming from her from her work. At the time, I'm in Afghanistan. And I'm trying to email and call at odd hours to try to get her. And, you know, she's, she's essentially ghosting me before ghosting was a thing. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, she's just not, she's not returning any phone call. I mean, I think landlords are probably known ghosting for their, you know, since, since the beginning of time. But, uh, yeah, so she's, she's not returning phone calls, not returning emails, uh, all that kind of stuff. And then and this was October. I remember specifically because I was in the midst of starting to redeploy. I'm trying to handle all this. And, she uh, then tells me, you know, after she's now behind, I think uh, almost a full month that she's moving out over Thanksgiving. She got another job up in uh, North Carolina or something like that. And that was it. So lots of pain there. Had I had I done and listened to my instincts and listened to the facts in front of me, uh, I would not have uh, rented to her. However, uh, that desperation piece uh, really crept in there and we were getting ready to leave without a tenant in our house. And when you're self-managing, that's a, that's a real tough thing to do. So she left you. So that's kind of, 
Yeah, you know, it ended up not being a huge uh, financial burden. Like I said, all in all, uh, it was somewhere uh, I think in the neighborhood of three to four thousand dollars. And there were some other things too, like when we got down there, she hadn't really left the house in the condition it should have been left in, and so that required me to go down there when I got back from from Afghanistan and spend a, a four day weekend down there just cleaning away and, and that kind of stuff. And then, of course, because she essentially vacated at the worst possible time, which is that period between Thanksgiving and and Christmas when nobody moves because it's the holiday season. I didn't have somebody lined up to take over again. And after about a month, I finally just turned it over to a property manager and they had it rented, I think, by February. So the house sat empty at that time for uh, just about two months, which actually that house since 2006 has only sat empty for four months total. So pretty blessed in that sense. And she accounted for half of that. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was my first, my first, uh, lesson there. And then the the second lesson I'll, I'll be a little bit more brief here is never conduct a walkthrough with a tenant and hand them their security deposit back after just doing a cursory look through the house. This is a lesson we learned once the tenant prior to the one I was just describing, actually, she was a reserve major, single female. She was down for a one-year assignment. She had a very large dog, which was okay with me. Uh, we met her at the house. We did a five to 10 minute walkthrough. You know, she's, she's talking to us. She's, oh, you know, I need to get on the road. I got to get back to my home state. I got to get back to work on Monday, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and generally speaking, things look clean. You know, you can kind of tell when you walk into a place if it's clean or not. Uh, I even walked into the backyard, which was a fairly large backyard, just to kind of see if there was any dog droppings or anything left back there. And all I really did was walk to the center of the yard and kind of just do a, a quick scan around the yard. And I didn't see anything. Right. So I thought, oh, OK, it's good. So the rookies, you know, that's me and my wife. We, we read her check and give her a security deposit back and, and she goes on her way. So as I mentioned, you know, we were we were doing a fair amount of upkeep and maintenance uh, during that turnover before we rented to the to the lady I just talked about. So now as we're getting into the painting and the other maintenance and we start looking around, there's things that were so obvious that we couldn't believe we didn't see this when we were doing our cursory search. So for instance, her large dog obviously had been jumping up and down on the uh, sliding glass door and had actually put long claw marks down through the glass that we couldn't couldn't fix. Wow. Tough, um, tough dog. Yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, on top of that, uh, you know, as I'm now in the backyard, you know, slaving away, knocking out, uh, all sorts of uh, tree maintenance and everything back there. I think I ended up picking up about 20 piles of, of dog dew, uh, that I just didn't <laughs> see in that okay. initial scan. And every one you pick up, you're just cursing. I was, you know, of course I'm cursing her a little bit, right. But I'm cursing myself. And, and, uh, you know, some people say it's it's nice to to have a cheap lesson, right? Well, this was my my stupid tax, like Dave Ramsey likes to say or whatever. This was my, hey, don't ever do this again. And I went back and I looked and I said, uh, okay, I'm never going to hand a check to a tenant after, you know, a 15, 20 minute handover of the keys and all that kind of stuff. And, I, and I'll tell them now when we change out, I'll just say, I, I want you to know for expectations you know, we are going to get you your deposit back within whatever the state law requires. I think for Tennessee, I believe it's five days. So for our last one, you know, I told my, my tenant, I said, hey, we're going to come up there. We're going to take the key and you guys can drive away. And my wife and I are going to go through and we're going to, you know, we'll clean where we need to clean and we're going to do our own inspection. But, and, you know, of course, everybody wants their, wants their deposit back. And most people, you know, deserve to have all their deposit back. But you really got to take the time to to walk through the house in detail and make sure that the house is truly uh, not just beyond normal wear and tear. 
Okay. Well, that makes that makes sense. That's not as much of a horror story as I've heard with some, and I'm sure you know, like people that have like ripped out toilets on their way out, or you know, left the water running in every spot because they they're just bitter about something. So um, it's a good lesson. Let me let me back up. I had I'm curious about something. The lady who left you high and dry in November. You had her security deposit, but she waited a full month to leave, right? And and then she didn't get her security deposit, I'm expecting, but she left you high and dry. Uh, so, yes, yes. So <laughs> another part of the story I didn't go into. I was getting a little long-winded there. But uh, so, again, the the the, uh, the nice guy in me, uh, you know, she said, hey, I can't give you the full security deposit when I move in, but I can give you, you know, a third of it. And then uh, we can work okay. a payment plan. So she gave us the third, you know, with the first check, for, you know, first month's rent, uh, and all they did was first month's rent and security deposit. So she gave us first month's rent. She gave us a third of the security deposit and said, "Hey, I'm gonna, you know, pay you an extra hundred bucks a month this night till we get the full security deposit." And I said, "Okay." So we did that, and you know, like I said, shortly after I turned the house over to her, uh, you know, I, I jumped on a plane and headed to Afghanistan. So probably about three months in, my wife's like, "Hey, you know, the tenant hasn't paid." the extra for the security deposit. So all we really have is the 400 or 450 or whatever it was. And I was like, well, you know, she, she has her automatic check sent to us from her employer um, and, and things are okay. And I, and I honestly, I said, I just can't really deal with it now because of what was going on downrange. So I just didn't have the mental energy to kind of focus on it. So yeah, the, uh, the, the part of that is I essentially got to keep whatever it was like 400 or 450 bucks, but it was only about a third of what the rent was. So yeah, I did keep that. And so I'll tell you, you know, like there's ways to mitigate the stress. You know, I talked about the stress, right? But there's there's a couple of ways for your for your listeners and for folks that are in similar situations to me to kind of mitigate the stress. You know, and one of them is have that that fund for your house, for that rental house that you that you know you're gonna use. So I think in some of the uh, financial independence uh, forums they refer to it as a, a sinking fund. I actually call mine a forecasted fund. Because I forecast that I'm going to have expenses in the future, so I have a you know essentially a taxes, maintenance, and insurance fund for my house. You know, and, and of course, the longer you're around, and the more money you kind of accumulate, the bigger that can get. But every month, you know, four to six hundred dollars goes into that fund, and you know I pay my taxes out of it a year, I pay my insurance out of it a year for the house that I own outright. But for my other house, if if that had to sit empty. For two to three months, I'd be okay. I could cover that. That's one way to mitigate that stress is if you know that you have two months, let's say, of your mortgage uh, in a savings account that's dedicated to that or maintenance fees or whatever else you need to do, that will reduce your stress and will mitigate the desire for you to take the next person that walks in the door. And so that's one way to do it. Uh, another way, I, as I kind of mentioned before, I, I do one and one, right? So one's a property manager and one's self-managed. The reason why I went to the property manager, as I kind of talked about, is because I was I was leaving. I was frustrated. I couldn't come down to show the house, and I was just kind of sick of it and turned it over to property manager. And initially, the property manager wasn't someone I was really all that happy with, but it was, again, it was kind of a move out of desperation. Fortunately for us, my wife and I, that property manager sold his business or got bought out by another property management company here in Columbus, Georgia. And I've been supremely happy with them, the way they communicate, the way they automate a lot of their stuff. And so now, yes, I pay 10%, right? And so 10% to the property manager, Okay. but they handle 
the advertising, they handle the turnover, they handle inspecting the property and move in and move out. They do biannual inspections and I get the reports automated. They handle all the maintenance calls and they get the items fixed. Now, items that they fix, they typically charge me a 10% on top of that, which, okay, that's, I guess that's kind of fair. I mean, they're the ones doing all the work. And, you know, for me, that's worth 10% of my, of my rent because all in all, that's costing me 1300 bucks a year. And I still get to, I still get to, you know, take home, uh, you know, almost, almost 12 to 13,000, you know, free and clear from the house, uh, that one in particular. So to me, that's another stress and an anxiety mitigator for single family, you know, managing. And then the last, the last thing, what I would say is the ultimate stress reducer. And I only learned this in the last two years is having no mortgage on a rental house, because if you've got no mortgage at all, and you can let that house sit empty for a month or two to find the right tenant. Gotcha. Hey, that's, that's a great point. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's my, my mind's turning to a few other questions for you. And that one was a perfect segue. Uh, and I, I'm going to go a little, little off script here. I, I know we, we talked a little bit uh, before we came online here about some similarities in our backgrounds, sort of uh, lower middle class guys. Uh, I, I moved down to Florida, South Florida when I was in first grade. I think you said fourth grade for you. And yep. um, to, I, to be honest, most of, uh, say, the first parts of my adult life, say from age 20 to 35, never really been a frugal guy. I can't claim to be in that uh, fire category or to be blunt, once I started making my own money, which was as an, as a young teenager, I decided that uh, I wouldn't forego the things that I had forgone, uh, which is one way to go. What I'm doing when I'm 65, if I'm still alive, that's that's something I'm trying to catch up on, right? But you're part of this uh, fire movement of extreme savings, and I really want to understand. I'm fascinated and in awe of people that uh, have that discipline and then the rewards they reap from that. And I would say paying off a home full and clear. It's something my wife has always wanted to do with our home. And uh, I've tended to say, even if I got it paid all the way off, if I could make more money by taking out some equity, I would try to do that. But I, so I want to get gain perspective from you, especially a guy who's uh, worked hard to get a master's degree in this area. You're talking about reducing stress. And that's really what a lot of this is about, especially for uh, active duty military people who have a bunch of other stressors going on. So if you don't mind sharing the philosophy of how you've come to be in this category and moving forward, what your philosophy on investing is overall. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of great stuff in there to unpack. So if I start getting long-winded, you know, shut me down. No problem. But uh, yeah, so, um, so first of all, I don't equate fire to extreme frugality. I'm not actually in that category. Uh, you know, you, you talked about uh, going to Hawaii for the first time. I, I went to Hawaii like three times in the last uh, two years as I was in Alaska, mostly because it's closer. But, you know, we have an RV, uh, which there's people out there, they'll tell you, don't ever buy an RV because all they do is lose value and all that kind of stuff, right? So uh, I'll, I'll first take it way back uh, because I think my grandfather, who grew up and was uh, in the Depression and who I spent a lot of time with and who I greatly admired, uh, shared a lot of wisdom with me many nights in Yonkers, New York, uh, sitting out in his, uh, his back patio and talking about the importance of saving, investing, and paying yourself first. And he kind of really got me on that path when I was early in life, 
Uh, I've been working really jobs since I was 14 years old, whether it be camp counselor stuff or I was a concierge and a doorman during some summers in New York City camps. I worked masonry reconstruction up in New York. You could see I used to go up to New York because I paid a lot better down in Florida. I think the uh, minimum wage back then was four twenty-five. I started a uh, I started a summer job in Florida, which you know is pretty miserable. And I was reteaking boats. And if you want to talk about a more miserable job, just imagine <laughs> being out in the blazing sun, uh, you know, on asphalt because the boats are all parked in a you know parking lot. Definitely, and, uh, I can equate a lot of miserable jobs yeah. down in South Florida in the summer. <laughs> Yep. Yep. So, and, and they're paying four twenty five, and I could go up to New York and I could make eight to 10 bucks an hour, you know, as a 17, 16, 18 year old kid. So, uh, so first step is, you know, I had, I had a good influencer, uh, when I was growing up and that's my grandfather. And I, I thank him often, uh, even though he's no longer with us, the knowledge that he imparted on me, uh, and really I would say the habit, right. Sure. Um, so, the second part is, and I'll tell you how I kind of paid for my, you know, I, I say mentally, I, I paid for my master's degree in the first class. This is kind of like where when you get a little bit of education, it can make a big difference. So let me tell you, let me kind of tell you this story a little bit. So first class for my master's is risk management, which essentially is just a little bit more fancier word for insurance class, right? And uh, we start talking, we're doing some time value money calculations right off the bat because it's really an important one you got to know just for all all classes. And then we start jumping into life insurance, whole life, term life, et cetera, right? So my wife and I, uh, if you rewind back to right before I joined the military, because we had actually met, we were both in the corporate world, uh, 9-11 uh, happened, and uh, kind of coinciding with that, I had already kind of made a decision that I didn't want to be a corporate guy working out of a cubicle for the rest of my life. And then 9-11 happened, and I said, okay, I want to I join the military. So before... I was able to do that. My wife's like, you're going to get a life insurance policy. Uh, so we got a $300,000 whole life life insurance policy that builds a cash value. We had the option at the time to be able to invest that cash value or cash balance into essentially an S&P 500 fund. And that's what we did. For 150 bucks, we paid it, 150 bucks a month. Uh, you know, we, we paid it every month for 16 years, or actually I think the time was 14, 14 and a half years. Kind of just set it and forget it. Never really thought about it. It was a $150 bill that got paid automatically. So I'm in my first class talking about cash balance, talking about some other things. And I said, you know what? I have not looked at this this thing in years. So let me go back and look at it. So I went and looked at it and the cash balance had grown. Uh, I think it was upper 40s, low 50s at the time, $50,000. And I was like, you know what? Let me, let me call around and see what I can get for a term life. Because at the time, I think I just turned 40. And I said, you know, a 20-year term would get me to 60, and I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident that we're going to be self-insured by then. I looked at it, and I got a, I could get a term life for 20 years, an $800,000 policy, which was almost triple what I had, for $51 a month. So I said, okay, I'm paying $150 a month now for $300,000 for the rest of my life, or I can take the next 20 years, have an $800,000 policy for a third of the cost, and I can take that $50,000 out and do something better with it. And so what did I do? I took the money out, closed down the policy, took a little bit of money out of savings, and I paid off that house. And literally within my first class, my wife and I, you know, we sat over the computer as we transferred that last uh, payment of 60 something thousand dollars to the, to the mortgage. And then you get the email, 
And a couple of days later, they send you a nice letter saying, congratulations, your, you know, your, your mortgage is retired or whatever it was. And then you get your, you know, you get your lien or whatever it is, you know, a few weeks after that. So that to me right there was worth the cost of my, uh, my master's degree by being able to identify that I was not best utilizing my money and that I had things that I could have accomplished faster in my life uh, had I done just a few things that are different. So one of the things about, you know, uh, financial independence is really kind of understanding and best employing your money to get what you need to do to reach your goals. And so my goal, you know, like I said, it's kind of, I have a fire mentality. And like I said, to me, that's, that doesn't equate extreme frugality. It doesn't even necessarily equate frugality. Uh, but I do consider my wife and I to be fairly frugal people. Okay. Um, I, I want to be able to have the freedom to retire and never work again when I leave the army. And that's my goal. And you can, you can do it if you listen to uh, Doug Nordman, who I think you know. And oh, yeah. Followed. <laughs> you can do it. He's yeah, been doing it since he was 41. So, yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's, uh, I, I find that fascinating uh, on a few levels. I mean, we could do a whole other podcast about life insurance. But just as a heads up, the very next podcast I'll be posting is my interview with Tom Rutkowski from Boynton Beach, Florida, who's a financial advisor. He's a former Marine is uh, just an interesting, he, he runs a site, innovation, uh, innovative retirement strategies.com. Tom's got me thinking about, uh, life insurance related things and, uh, I, not too much of a spoiler alert, but it's, it's just interesting that, uh, you utilize that policy in that way, uh, to serve your needs and, uh, to pay off that house that one paid off. And now, so your goal by 2026, I think you told me is to pay off the one in Tennessee as well. So you are on the, uh, I'll say Dave Ramsey track and mindset of just paying these things off all the way. So in good times and bad times, you never have to worry. You're always going to get rent, right? Yeah. That's, I mean, that's kind of the plan. Um, and I, and I will give, I will give Dave some credit, uh, you know, being that I was up in Clarksville, uh, you know, he's on the radio quite a bit there. And so he's the one that really, uh, I guess kind of motivated me to to start thinking about those things, and I and I you know if you if you're familiar with those baby steps, you know he recommends not doing the investing until you've got all this other stuff taken care of. But I had been saving and investing my entire life because of my grandfather's philosophy of pay yourself first, which means hey if you get that you know thousand dollar paycheck, you automatically put fifteen percent in another account, you invest it, and then you take what that eight hundred fifty bucks you got left and you do whatever else you're going to do with it. But I'll tell you this, it wasn't until I actually got my master's degree that I, I really kind of started to drift away a bit from a lot of Dave's philosophies, especially on his investing side. Um, and I think he's great on the debt side and the saving side. And, you know, he's got a program that people who aren't as well educated or and I say not as well educated in terms of financial uh, savviness, right? Or they never had somebody who influenced them in their lives to save and to, to not have debt and everything. I mean, there's people that, that think, you know, you know, car payments are normal. And for most of us, it is. But man, it's really great if you could go write a check and buy a car, right? And do you have to buy a brand new car? Or could you buy a car that's, you know, three or four years old, and have that initial, you know, heavy depreciation taken out of it. But jumping back real quick to, to that, just the tail end of that insurance conversation, you know, the, the I've heard the phrase, I don't know where, but personal finance is personal. And so, you know, what happened to me and the, and the approach I took worked for me, Work for me in that situation, but you know I'm definitely not one that would say you should never do whole life or you should never do some of these other insurance options out there. 
you know, for me, there's two sides of the equation. There's the, the what it can do for you side, but then there's the expense or the fee side. So if what it can do for you matches your goals, uh, as long as the fees are not ridiculous, uh, then by, by all means, go ahead and do it. When I kind of tried to do the math and it was hard to do uh, just because you don't necessarily share all the information, but that cash balance that I had accrued over time in that uh, in that whole life policy was quite a bit less than it should have been had I just taken that money and put it in the market. I would have had quite a bit more money had I done it that way and not paying the, the fees that are kind of hidden and a little bit more wrapped up in some of these insurance policies. But I will say this, I think Absolutely. I think that industry has gotten more transparent also in the last five to 10 years versus when we had purchased that thing uh, back in 20 or sudden 2002. That makes sense. Even with as far as they've come, it's still like you need a separate master's degree to even understand what these policies oh, yeah. are saying half the time. So to your point, though, I think with the discipline that you were raised on and that your grandfather instilled in you, that is an important key to the idea of taking a, a term term insurance and doing something with the rest because this the majority of people won't do it. And I mean, I think that's the idea of the Social Security to begin with, turn into the idea, okay, people, you won't save your own money, so we're going to take it from you save it for me for you and then pay you back later. Kind yeah. Of mentality, yeah you, know, you know what I mean? So I think people like, I hate to say it, but they kind of like being forced into savings or forced into doing certain things as long as they get that benefit from it. The danger of course, is if the people you give your money to to manage it, don't do it appropriately in the right way. <laughs> and you've yeah. saved your entire life. And next thing you know, when you come 66, 67 years old and you thought you were going to get a certain amount of money every month, and now you're not, or now you have to wait till you're 70. You know, are you working up until you're 70 because you haven't saved enough on your own to be able to stop working? That, that's what kind of drives me. There yeah. you go. And originally, think about the Social Security, Social Security Administration. That was supposed to be money that stayed there, and it wasn't long after in the 1930s and early 40s that they started dipping into there and go, Hey, we got this money over here. We use it for other stuff, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's very similar the way, yeah, it's very similar the way Florida introduced the lottery. If you remember, you know, it was going to augment the education budget and everybody Absolutely. thought that was great. Cause at the time, you know, you and I are, are Florida public school graduates. So, uh, you know, we know how that was, but, uh, they said, yeah, it's going to augment the education. Everybody said, yep, let's vote for it. And then what they pulled the old bait and switch and they said, Oh yeah, we just defunded education and we replaced the money from the lottery for stuff that used to be going to education. So they didn't add to, they just replaced and put the education money somewhere else in the government. So that was kind of a, a little nasty uh, bait and switch that they did back in the eighties <laughs> yeah, or nineties, you know, and I'm not naive too. like, you know, as a, as a, you know, hopeful future military retiree, you know, hey, at some point in time, you know, public attitude may change and they may say, Hey, look, we don't feel military should have a, an inflation protected pension. And so maybe, you know, we've already changed it, you know, which is supposed to help lots of savings over many years, but, you know, maybe in 30 or 40 years, we'll be in a position where the country can't afford the military pensions it's already obligated to. And we've seen plenty of states go through this. So I'm not naive to think that that may not be there. You know, it's, it's a little bit scary, but because that is one of my buckets for retirements. Yeah. Sure. And it's mirroring, it's mirroring, the challenges that states have had and challenges the federal governments have had with entitlements. And I think at the time when it used to be, you know, hey, you do your 20 years, you retire, man, you're set for life. And that was at a time when 
people were dying much quicker after they retired, you know. Yeah. They'd all been like horses ridden hard, put away wet, right? That, yep. But now yep. we don't smoke as much. We don't drink and drive as much. We don't, you know, a lot yeah. of things change. People are living. Science is improving. And now they're our, like, oh. Our parents don't smoke and drink while they have the babies in the womb. <laughs> there you go. So now they're, everybody's like, damn, well, these people are living. What are we going to do? We got to keep on feeding them. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I hear you. It's a, it, um, Hopefully we'll keep taking care of our military veterans and that won't go away as a, a sacred cow based on the sacrifice that uh, men and women have given in that vein. But but we'll see. And since you mentioned that bucket, I guess we can't talk forever. I, I would love to talk to you for another hour or two, but we both got things to do and we'll have to ha- have another interview a different time. It's been, uh, I've enjoyed it. I want to shift and ask you a few more questions before I let you go today. Yeah. You mentioned that bucket in terms of real estate investing as one of your buckets. I am wondering if you can uh, share your philosophy on that and then maybe advice to to military members who, who want to follow your track in terms of investing or saving some some overall nuggets that you might provide. Yeah. Yeah. So it's expand a little bit on my bucket strategy, right? So essentially I kind of have three buckets and, and one of those buckets I'd say is almost subdivided into another one too. But uh, you know, for me, mentally, bucket number one is my military pension, you know, and assuming that nothing happen, happens drastically in the next three years, you know, I, I should be eligible for a military pension. You know, this to me is my, my ultimate fallback position. You know, if my other couple of buckets evaporate, uh, I expect that I will always be able to survive and live relatively comfortably off of a military pension. And that's whether I get out at 20 as lieutenant colonel or if I decide to stay in for, you know, a few more years and see if the, the army still wants me around, you know, and in addition to the, the the money aspect of it, I think that the true or one of the true benefits of the military retirement is the medical benefits that come along with it. Very low cost medical. Now, you, you hear people have different experiences, some very positive, depending on sometimes where you live, uh, some fairly negative, but to have a, a medical that is relatively cheap and have a, a steady stream of finance uh, financial income is is significant, and as Doug Nordman says, you know the, the most powerful thing about the military pension is it's inflation protected, right? So you're going to get a Absolutely. a cola essentially every year or most every year, you know, based on I think it's the consumer price index. I'm a big fan of, of Doug's. Uh, I love his book. I love what he puts out online. I love hearing him interviewed, and you know I love his attitude and his approach to, to fire. So bucket number two uh, consists of our two houses, like I talked about. As you mentioned, uh, I, I am currently on a path to pay off that second house uh, in seven years, uh, which for me is kind of like my first decision point on uh, when I think I potentially would retire, you know, unless there's a significant windfall of money, i.e. I win the lottery before that. But with two houses paid for and presumably rented out, you know, I expect that I could grow somewhere in the neighborhood of $34,000 a year uh, as long as maintenance uh, stays fairly low. I uh, should be able to net then probably about $27,000 a year. So, you know, it's not enough to go gangbusters. But again, when you start adding these buckets together, a little bit here, a little bit here, a little bit here, adds up to a fairly, you know, hopefully comfortable uh, retirement. And really, it's about not so much about comfortability, but it's also about freedom. And it's the freedom to decide, do I need to get up and go get a job where I'm collecting a W-2 or something else? you know, full-time? Or, you know, can I do something that I want to do or that I'm interested in doing maybe part-time? I kind of always think I still want to work a little bit, even if it's just enough to make sure I max out my Roth IRA every year for me and my wife, right? So, you know, if I earn just that amount a year, 
you know, for the two of us, that'd be $12,000, you know, then I think I'd be pretty happy with that. Right. So bucket two, my rental houses. And honestly, uh, my wife and I go back and forth about this quite a bit, but I'd like to have four paid off houses because now I'm looking at about 50 grand in income, you know, a year uh, net, but uh, the missus isn't, isn't too excited with uh, potentially managing two other houses. <laughs> and then bucket three, yeah, bucket three uh, consists of uh, really my mutual fund investments. So that's both, this is that bucket I talked about being maybe subdivided. So I've got a taxable side of that bucket and I've got a tax deferred side of that bucket. So tax deferred, pretty easy. It's my TSP. I invest in both. Uh, well, I, I kind of flip flop from times depending on what situation I'm in at the time, but I, I'll go back and forth between the, the Roth TSP and the regular TSP or traditional. And I expect that I'll continue this uh, until I retire. And then eventually I will transition the or uh, convert the traditional TSP stuff over to Roth when the time comes. Uh, we also max out our uh, Roth IRAs. Uh, this year actually be the first year that I max out my TSP or I'm on track to do that. Uh, so we'll be able to put the full $19,000 in. We, my wife and I have maxed out our Roth IRAs every year that we've had them. I've had an IRA. It wasn't a Roth initially, but I converted it uh, since I think I was 16 is when I first started my, my first IRA. And then my wife, I know, has had one at least since we've been married. I've got that tax deferred side. And then on, on the taxable side, money just that are, again, also in mutual fund investments. My goal for this kind of sub bucket here is from the time that I retire until the time I hit 59 and a half, where I can now have access without penalty to the tax deferred funds, I want this money to be able to make up the difference from what my pension is, what I'm bringing in from the houses, and what my monthly expenses are. And really, you know, your monthly expenses, you can also change too. So yeah, I'm definitely kind of a, a budget nerd. I do have already my my draft retirement budget uh, <laughs> nice. broken broken down broken down to the month, you know. And so in that in that draft retirement budget, uh, I've got eight hundred and thirty three dollars a month, which equates to ten thousand dollars a year going towards vacations, right? So if if things go south a little bit, that's an easy line item number. And it's like, hey, honey, we're not we're not going to go to Hawaii this year. We're not going to go to Europe this year. We're not going to take this cruise this year. Instead, we'll we'll do something else that's cheaper, more local, all that kind of stuff. You know, and then really the last thing is, you know, you can always cut back on your uh, not always. I found that for us personally, there's there's always some ability to cut back on expenses. And so, you know, if things were again to kind of go south with a couple different things, you know, I, I feel comfortable that we could cut back and still live fairly comfortably off military pension and that retirement, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the house income as well. Yeah. So Steve, thanks for explaining those uh, three buckets. And it sounds like a very, very balanced approach that some of you fire guys have in that really, if you start young enough and you're balanced enough that you can really get to these end goals without having to, you know, have thousands of units, uh, on some level, it's just about daily discipline, right? Would you agree? Yeah, I would. Absolutely. You know, like in military terms, I'd say, I'm performing a frontal attack versus a penetration, right? So a broad front, uh, you know, a couple different uh, asset allocation or classes, you know, instead of like trying to go for one asset type, you know, with the home run, I like, I like to kind of spread it out. I think it does two things. One, it gives you, it spreads out your risk, obviously, right? So if the market substantially goes down for a significant amount of time, you know, maybe your real estate bucket comes up and maybe there's other times when the real estate goes way down, but your your investments come up. So and then, of course, if you can balance all that out with uh, living beneath your means, 
looking for the best way to optimize every dollar that you earn, uh, making sure you're not spending it on, you know, frivolous things that don't bring you joy in your life. You know, I think that's a good, a good approach, a good balanced approach. Yeah, definitely, definitely like it. So, uh, especially for any uh, young soldiers, Marines, or airmen listening, this uh, starting early and being balanced, I think, is uh, really key to relieving stress and uh, helping you achieve those goals. Uh, especially if you want to retire out of the military and and actually be retired, not have to just go to your second job. So, so uh, Steve, as we wrap up here, I'm wondering if you have any uh, last uh, bit of advice. Yeah, I would just say. You know, a lot of times when I listen to real estate uh, or folks talk about real estate, you know, I hear a lot. Of, I heard the word of deals a lot. You know, got to make a deal, get your first deal done, that that kind of thing. So, you know, my perspective would just be have some patience, uh, do your homework, do your research. Don't don't just get a deal to get a deal done because you know you know the financial implications, especially if you're young, uh, can can carry with you for a long time if you if you make the wrong deal. So. There's tons of resources out there. There's tons of people that are willing to share their information with you, whether it be through social media, through established blogs, through websites. Uh, probably my my starting point website for if I've got any type of landlording type question would be uh, landlordguidance.com. And, you know, they got a, a great forum out there. They've got lots of information. And again, it's just a starting point. Every state is individual, so you have to figure out what it is for the rules, what the rules are for the states you're in at the time. Uh, many of us in the military, we may come from a state that we're not buying a home in, right? So mostly I grew up in Florida, but you know I own a house in Georgia and I own a house in Tennessee. And I have to make sure that I keep my brain straight when I'm thinking about things as far as what's the rules for Tennessee vice Georgia. So uh, my, one, my one thing would be do your research uh, and, and use, use the assets that are out there to, to get yourself smart. And then once you feel like you're, you know, you'll never be 100% comfortable, but once you feel you're probably at about the 80%, then go ahead and, and jump in the pool. Landlordguidance.com. You got any other uh, source of info? I was going to ask you whether you had any favorite uh, sites or books. Um, yeah, so not, not so much uh, real estate books, but um, I think Doug Norman kind of got me turned on to biggerpockets.com. There's a lot of good information out there as well. And I've most of my focus for books and stuff has mostly been on the investing side of the house. I love the Snowball. It's uh, the only authorized biography about uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, so it's just a good understanding of his life, you know. And, and there's things that that he applies to investing that I think that I've taken me personally, but that others can also uh, apply to real estate. I mean, he, he he's a buy and hold guy. He uh, very rarely likes to sell. So that's kind of my philosophy with with houses too: buy, hold. You know, obviously, as PCS has come up, transition to rentals. But, you know, for the time being, I have zero intention of, of ever selling any of my houses. Well, Steve, I really enjoyed our time. We're going to have to uh, get you on here again in the future. I think we got other areas to talk about and a lot of specific, really, uh, advice for active duty members uh, like yourself. So I really appreciate you taking the time in between your, uh, your busy work schedule, TDY schedule, uh, members want to get in touch with you. What's the best way? If anybody's got any specific questions, are you open to being contacted? Or you on social? Yeah, absolutely. Media? Uh, if you want to hit me up on email, uh, just spmcginnis at hotmail dot com. Uh, put something uh, uh, funny or something in the subject line because it's mostly all that stuff goes to a junk box, and then I kind of sort through from there. Okay, great. Thanks a lot, Steve. Uh, it's been great talking to you. I'll let you go and get on your plane. Yeah, thank you. We'll be in touch. Yeah, thank you, Jim. I appreciate it. And uh, thanks for what you do for this, too. I appreciate it. Hey, you're welcome. We'll try to keep it going, man.
Take care. I'm proud to be your host. I'm privileged to have served, and I'm grateful for all your sacrifices. Until next time. Because the flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. And I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who Cause there ain't no doubt I love this land